It was a sunny morning on September 11th, 2001. Thousands of people woke up and got ready for work, not knowing they were about to experience one of the biggest terrorist attacks the United States has been dealt. A lot of the working class have already spent the start of their morning in the offices, working on paperwork and their projects. At 8.45, everything changed. Welcome to the Higher Theories Podcast. Dive deep with us, your hosts, Jamie and Katrina, as we discuss past and current conspiracy theories, special events, and everything strange. You can find us on Instagram, Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you listen to your favorite podcasts. Episode 1, The Collapse of the Twin Towers. Today's episode will be a big one it will be split into two parts. The first part we will discuss the event and what happened. In part two of the collapse of the Twin Towers, we will go over the theories. Was it an inside job devised by the Bush government? Was it a true terrorist attack? Did the government know about the attacks prior to them happening? Was it a controlled demolition? Strap in as we go deep into this one. Welcome to the Higher Theories Podcast. American Airlines Flight 11 The first airplane to be hijacked was American Airlines Flight 11. This was, well, Boeing? Yeah, Boeing. 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 Boeing, Boeing. 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 Boeing, yeah. This is a Boeing. I'm going to say Boeing before I say Boeing. Yeah, Yeah. Boeing. Because it's not Boeing. (laughs) This was a Boeing 767, first delivered to American Airlines in 1987. This plane had a passenger capacity of 158 souls. It had previously performed 58,350 hours of flight and was expected for its flight from Boston Logan International Airport to, to Los Angeles International Airport on September 11, 2001. With an underloaded plane, Flight 11 only contained 81 passengers and 11 crew members, just over 50% capacity. The crew, remembered for their bravery and service, consisted of Captain John Ognowski, aged 50, First Officer Thomas McGinnis Jr., aged 42, Purser Karen Martin and Flight Attendants Barbara Arstegree, Jeremy Coleman, Sarah Lowe, Kathleen Nicosia, Betty Ong, and Jean Roger, Diane Snyder, and Amy Sweeney. Unfortunately, all 11 flight attendants did not survive. Among the passengers were five men by the names of Mohammed Adda, Abdulaziz Al Amari, Walid. Al Hiri, Whale Al Shahiri, and Saddam Al Shakwami? Al Shakwami. Al Sakwami. Al Salami. Close enough. These men were about to change the world. <laughs> Apparently, notable celebrities like Mark Wahlberg and Seth MacFarlane 
were supposed to be on that flight, but had cancelled their flights prior to the day. Imagine all the people that stayed home sick that day or missed the flight and cancelled like that. To be able to dodge disaster without knowing it. That's pretty crazy. That is pretty crazy. So it starts with Muhammad Atta, the ringleader of the attacks, the oldest of the 19 men involved in the 9-11 attacks, and fellow hijacker Abdulaziz Al-Amari. They got to the airport at 5.41 Eastern Daylight Time on September 11th, 2001. At the Portland ticket counter, Atta asked ticket agent Mike Tahoy for his boarding pass for Flight 11. He was told he'd have to check in a second time when he reached Logan. Apparently this angered Ada, as he clenched his jaw and appeared on the verge of anger. He told Tahoy that he'd been told he'd have a one-stop check-in. The ticket counter didn't budge or rise to Ada's hostility, and simply told him that he'd better hurry if he didn't want to miss the flight. Ada was obviously still angered. He and Omari left the ticket counter for the Portland Airport's security checkpoint. They boarded Colgan Air Flight 5930, which was scheduled to depart at 6 from Portland, Maine and fly to Boston. Both hijackers had first-class tickets with a connecting flight to Los Angeles. Ada checked in two bags while Omari checked in none. When they checked in, the computer-assisted passenger Pre-screening system, CAPS, selected Ada for extra luggage scrutiny, but they found nothing, so he was allowed to board without incident. The flight from Portland departed on time and arrived in Boston at 6.45. Three other hijackers, Walid al-Shahiri, Whale al-Shahiri, and Satam al-Sakwami, arrived at Boston Logan Airport at 6.45. Having left their rental car in the airport parking facility. At 6.52, Marwan Al Shahini, the hijacker pilot of United Airlines Flight 175, made a call from a payphone in Logan Airport to Ada's cell phone. This call was apparently to confirm that the attacks were ready to begin. Since Ada and Amari were not given that direct flight ticket, they had to once again go through the security checkpoint. Sakwami, Whale Ashiri, and Walid Al-Shahiri also checked in for the flight in Boston. Whale Al-Shahiri and Sakwami each checked one bag. Walid Al-Shahiri did not check in any bags, which raised questions with airport security. The airport security system selected all three for a detailed luggage check. As the CAPS screening was only for luggage, the three hijackers did not undergo any extra scrutiny at the passenger security checkpoint and were allowed to proceed. Due to the rushed check-in, Ada's bag did not get loaded onto the airplane. All five hijackers were aboard the plane at 7.45. By 7.50, the aircraft was cleared for takeoff, and at 7.59, they traveled down the runway at full throttle. 
Apparently 14 minutes into the flight, the pilots stopped responding to the air traffic controllers, and this is when they believed the hijacking began. At 8.13, as the aircraft was passing over central Massachusetts at 26,000 feet, the pilots responded to a request from Boston air traffic controllers to make a 20-degree turn to the right. At 8.13, the Boston air traffic controller told the pilots to ascend to a cruising altitude of 35,000 feet, but received no response. At 8.16, the aircraft leveled off at 29,000 feet and quickly deviated from its scheduled route. Multiple attempts to contact Flight 11 were made, but no reply was ever given. Do you think at this point maybe the passengers realized? Or do you think the passengers still had like no idea that there was a hijacking I think maybe like on? with all, with, you said there was like 19, right? 19 crew members, or 11 crew members. Of the hijacking? Yeah, there was 11 crew members on this plane. Five hijackers. Okay, so the five hijackers, I'm pretty sure that they would have most of them out on the floor, kind of just making Yeah, sure like making a scene out of it. Yeah. During the hijacking, it was believed a few passengers and flight attendants were injured. Two flight attendants, Karen Martin and Barbara Arrestigui, were reported to have been stabbed by one of the hijackers. They reportedly succumbed to their injuries during the hijacking. A passenger by the name of Daniel Lewin reportedly had his throat slashed. Well, I guess there we go. That answers my question on did the passengers know? Daniel had served as an officer in the elite Sariat Matkal Special Operations Unit of the Israel Defense Forces. It's thought he may have attempted to stop the hijacking and stop one of the hijackers in front of him, unaware another was behind him, which therefore led to his throat getting slashed. These reports were given to officials during the hijacking by flight attendant Amy Sweeney. She was able to contact air traffic and authorities with her cell phone she hid from the hijackers. Amy let the authorities know the terrorists got the cockpit key after stabbing the flight attendants. Another flight attendant was able to contact air traffic and the authorities. Her name was Betty Ong. During a four-minute call with the American Airlines Operations Center, Ong provided information about lack of communication with the cockpit, lack of access to the cockpit, and that she thought someone had sprayed mace in the business class cabin. She also provided the seat locations of the hijackers, which later helped the investigators to determine their identities. Around 8.24, it's believed Ada tried to radio to the passengers on the flight but instead radioed straight to Boston International Air Traffic Controllers. Ada said over the radio, We have some planes. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are returning to the airport. At 8.24 he announced, Nobody move. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any moves, you'll endanger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. It was around 8.33, Ada announced a third and final transmission. 
Nobody move, please. We are going back to the airport. Don't try to make any stupid moves. Could you imagine that? So, like, he goes to make an announcement to the passengers to, like, hey, nobody move. You know, we have this plane. You guys, you know, we're hijacking this. And he accidentally calls, like, air traffic controllers. <laughs> and they're just sitting there listening. All of a sudden, he's like, hey, don't move. They're like, oh, hello? Hello? Who's it? Oh, I think we have hijacking going on. So at that point, the air traffic controllers were definitely aware of the hijacking going on. There's no way they couldn't be aware of that now. The next few minutes would change the world forever. At 8.46, Ada intentionally crashed American Airlines Flight 11 into the northern facade of the North Tower of the World Trade Center, traveling at about 404 knots which equals to 465 miles per hour. The aircraft entered the building in a blinding fireball, instantly obliterating the airplane. The damage caused by this strike to the North Tower destroyed any means of escape at the impact zone or above it, meaning everyone above the impact was stuck, doomed to their fate. All stairwells and elevators from floor 92 to at least floor 99 and up were rendered impassable. It's estimated 1,344 people were on those floors. According to the commission report, hundreds were killed instantly by the impact. The rest were trapped and died from the subsequent fire and smoke. The eventual collapse, or in some cases, after jumping or falling from the building, Elevator shafts channeled burning jet fuel through the building. Elevator shafts carrying this burning fuel downward, exploding in the sky lobbies on floors 78 and 22, and in the main lobby at the base of the tower. After the crash, the North Tower burned for 102 minutes before collapsing at 10.28. Although the impact itself caused a ton of structural damage, the fires ignited by jet fuel was the official blame for the structural failure of the tower. United Airlines Flight 175, the second doomed airplane. This airplane was another fixed-wing, multi-engine Boeing 767 owned and operated by American Airlines. It was delivered to American Airlines in 1983 and began its life in Chicago. United Airlines Flight 175 was a scheduled passenger flight from Logan International Airport in Boston, Massachusetts to Los Angeles International Airport in Los Angeles, California on September 11, 2001. The bravery of this crew will also be remembered forever. The nine crew members included Captain Victor Saracini, aged 51, First Officer Michael Horrocks, aged 38, Purser Catherine Labory, and Flight Attendants Robert Fangman, Amy Jurett, Amy King, Alfred Marchand, Michael Taru, and Alicia Titus. 
The passengers, excluding five men thought to be the hijackers, were 35 men, 12 women, and three children, who were all under the age of five. The hijackers of Flight 175 were Marwan Al Shahini from the United Arab Emirates, Fayez Banahamid, also from the UAE, and three Saudi brothers, Hamaz Al Kahamdi and Hamid Al Kamahandi, as well as Mohand Al Shahri. Hamza Al Gamdi and Ahmed Al-Gamdi checked out of their hotel and called a taxi to take them to Logan International Airport. The taxi ride went well without issue, and without the taxi driver noticing anything. They arrived at the United Airlines counter in Terminal C at 6.20 Eastern Time, and Ahmed Al-Gamdi checked in two bags. Both hijackers indicated they wanted to purchase tickets, even though they apparently already had paper tickets. They had trouble answering the standard security questions, so the counter agent repeated the questions very slowly and until satisfied with their responses. Hijacker pilot Marwan Al Shahini checked in a single bag at 6.45, and the other remaining hijackers, Fayez Banahamid, and Mohand al-Shahiri checked in at 6.53. Banahamad checked two bags. Sadly, none of the Flight 175 hijackers were selected for extra scrutiny by the computer-assisted passenger pre-screening system. Shahi and the other hijackers aboarded Flight 175 between 7.23 and 7.28. Banahamad boarded first and sat in the first class seat 2A, while Mohand Al-Shiri was in seat 2B. At 7.27, Shahi and Ahmad Al-Gamdi boarded and sat in business class seat 6C and 9D. One minute later, at 7.28, Hamza Al-Gamdi boarded and sat in 9C. The airplane was clear for takeoff and the plane pushed back at 7.58 and took off at 8.14 from runway 9. If you remember Flight 11, the previous airplane we talked about, was hijacked at 8.15. That's cutting it close for sure, as I would assume it would be radioed to every aircraft that a major hijacking is underway. Right? Like... You'd think that they would uh, let every pilot know that there's a hijacking underway, be cautious, and they beat it by one minute before radio traffic knew. That's crazy. That's cutting it close. Sometime between 8.42 and 8.46, Flight 175 was hijacked, while Flight 11 was just minutes away from hitting the North Tower. It is believed that hijackers Banahamid and Al-Shahiri forcibly entered the cockpit and attacked the pilots while the others commanded passengers and crew to the rear of the cabin and Shahi took over the controls. The first operational evidence that something was abnormal on Flight 175 came at 8.47 when the plane's transponder signal changed twice within the span of one minute and the aircraft began deviating from its assigned course. 
So unlike Flight 11, which had turned its transponder off, Flight 175's flight data could still be properly monitored. So that meant that air traffic was able to keep track of its flight and all of its deviations. As the plane approached New York City, Shahi would have seen the fire and smoke pouring from the North Tower in the distance. Writer Tom McMillan believes that the sight must have thrilled him. Ada had struck. We can only guess that it was a final motivation for him to do the same. Based on the position of the aircraft, from eyewitness statements and video footage, the aircraft was in a banking left turn as it approached. Those who were on the left side of the plane would have, would have had a clear view of the towers approaching, with one burning until the final moment of the flight. Can you imagine that? Looking out your window and seeing the other tower burning, knowing that you're obviously traveling too low, and maybe knowing that you're not even traveling towards where your destination is. Mm -hmm. That would just be terrifying. At exactly 9.03, 17 minutes after the first airplane, Flight 11, hit the North Tower, Flight 175 crashed nose first into the southern facade of the South Tower of the World Trade Center at approximately 590 miles per hour, or for us Canadians, 950 kilometers an hour. Striking through floors 77 and 85, it is estimated that 637 people were instantly killed in the collision, including those stuck on the floors above the collision. Unlike at the North Tower, initially, one of three stairwells, Stairwell A, was still intact after the crash. This was because the plane struck the tower offset from the center, and not the center, like Flight 11 did. Only 18 people passed the impact zone through the available stairwell and left the South Tower safely before it collapsed. Only one person on the 81st floor survived, Stanley Pramath, whose office was sliced by the wing of the plane. He witnessed Flight 175 coming towards him. Apparently, one of the wings sliced through his office and wound up wedged in a doorway about 20 feet from him. It said no one escaped above the impact point in the North Tower. Some people above the impact zone made their way upward towards the roof in hopes of a helicopter rescue. However, access doors to the roof were locked. In any case, thick smoke and intense heat prevented rescue helicopters from landing. The South Tower collapsed at 9.59 after burning for 56 minutes. So that was part one of the collapse of the Twin Towers. In part two, we will discuss the conspiracies. Was it a government operation from the Bush administration? Was it an actual terrorist attack? We will discuss all these in part two. Thank you for listening to part one. You can find more episodes from Higher Theories on Instagram, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, 
and anywhere else you find your favorite podcast. Thank you. Signing out.